Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education Podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field. My name is Eric Van Dusen from Data Science Undergraduate Studies in the Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society at UC Berkeley, and I'll be leading our conversation today. And my name is Harry Lee, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping out today too. Today, we're excited to have Chris Holdgraf with us. Uh, it's great to have you, Chris. Um, can you just do a little introduction of yourself uh, and uh, what your affiliation is? Yeah. Um, so my name is Chris Holgraf. Uh, I've been at UC Berkeley for about 10 years in varying roles and, and things that I've focused on. Um, started off as a graduate student in the neuroscience program and got a lot more involved throughout grad school in open source communities and, and kind of more generic data science. Um, I ended up working with the Berkeley Institute for Data Science for two years where I focused around um, open source communities and shared interactive computing infrastructure. So I, I focused a lot on a large open source project called the Jupyter Project. Um, and we would both run infrastructure locally at, at UC Berkeley, um, deploying it and customizing it for use cases in research and education. And I would also um, interface with other open source communities out there that were you know, developing and maintaining and supporting this infrastructure and help ensure that the sort of the needs and the, and the use cases of research and education were also driving development um, in the underlying technology as well. Um, so did that work for several years and just recently have shifted into starting a, a nonprofit initiative that tries to basically replicate those successes, but um, in a way that's accessible to lots of other universities, community colleges and, and institutions as well. Um, and that's a, a nonprofit initiative called 2I2C or the International Interactive Computing Collaboration. And that's what I'm up to most of the time now. Nice. So what's a challenge uh, that you've faced when trying to promote data science education? I mean, I think that there are a lot of different kinds of challenges at different, uh, of different varieties, right? I think a lot of the ones that I have tended to focus on over the years are more towards access to infrastructure. Um, I think that uh, from my perspective, both as like a teacher when I've taught this thing before, um, but also as someone who's you know, observed more from the sidelines, I think that it's just much easier and much more accessible to students to learn these kinds of skills when they don't have to immediately jump into the deep end and start learning like kind of hairy topics and like, you know, environment management and, you know, setting everything up on your computer. Um, when you can remove those roadblocks and make them, you know, learning modules like everything else, but, you know, for which there's the right time and place for it rather than the very first thing you do before you even start you know, learning Python or something. Um, when you remove those roadblocks, I think that you open up pathways to people that would not traditionally um, be engaging in you know, data science or programming or anything like that. And I think that that's really important that we find new ways to, to you know, make that path as seamless and, and low barrier as possible. 
Uh, I think that there's still like a lot of work that we need to do in that space. In some ways, just providing someone an environment is kind of the the, the most basic thing that you can do. And, and I think there's a lot of other directions to explore about like new ways that you can actually enhance the learning process rather than just providing access. As a follow-up, uh, what do you think are some challenges at the national level for data science education or sort of like coordinating across institutions? I mean, I think that, um, well, I think I'm a little bit biased in my answer to this question, but um, my take on it is that if you think that access to infrastructure is a really important part of uh, kind of broadening participation in data science education and also just making the, those efforts more effective in general, I think that um, setting up that shared infrastructure is a real challenge, um, particularly because the kinds of skills that are needed to do it, um, especially if you're going to rely on cloud infrastructure, which, which I would argue is the best way to approach this in the modern era, um, if you want to do that, it requires a skill set that is not common in universities. That's um, really hard to hire for because that's a very in-demand skill set outside of academia. Um, and it's also kind of hard to train for because, you know, you need trainers to train new people. And, mm -hmm. and so in a sense, it's like the people that, that would be training younger generations to do this in a university are themselves not inside of universities. They tend to work for, for companies and whatnot. So I think that a big challenge here is um, how do you grow that capacity within higher education without effectively like outsourcing that capacity to um, proprietary technology and, and companies that are providing services that are useful to academia, but don't necessarily align with like the values around scholarship and, and open um, information and in communities that, that I think we all care about. Fantastic. And I got to say, as a data science student myself, um, lowering that barrier of learning with uh, the infrastructure provided is definitely one of the most helpful things. And um, I, I also wanted to ask, um, what do you see as the future for data science education and how do you think it might continue to evolve over time? I mean, I think that in my mind, what's interesting about data science education, and in a sense is I think part of the broader sort of data science um, trajectory in general, is that it will continue to exist as its own standalone entity, but I think that it will continue to be interwoven more deeply into a lot of other kinds of fields. And those aren't just like sort of data-driven fields, right? It's not just like, how do I apply data science to you know, this econometrics problem or this biology problem or whatever, but it's also sort of understanding a more nuanced and like a more complex relationship between society and, and data and the impacts that data has, the assumptions that we bring with us when we work with data, the ways in which those assumptions may be wrong um, about like what we can or should do with data, what its impacts might be when it's objective, when it's not objective. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we're, we're moving past the like, it's really cool to learn about scikit-learn and just be able to run a bunch of models very easily and fluidly. And we're moving more into like, okay, it's not just a set of skills, it's like a mindset and a way of thinking, and it integrates with all of the other parts, and in some ways, all of the other problems that we have in society. And so you need to have that more complex take on, on data in order to be like an effective data scientist. Definitely, that's super exciting. Um, and I, I also wanted to ask you, how do you think that we as 
data scientists and as educators should be creating or evolving the community around data science education? I mean, I think that to, to sort of piggyback on what I was saying before, the most important thing there is to broaden participation and invite people into the conversation that like historically haven't been a part of, you know, computer science and data science and statistics and, and also, you know, the application of these things into making decisions. I think that, you know, generally speaking, it's going to be really hard for people who don't have the sort of lived experiences of certain groups to be able to design curricula and to be able to design, you know, learning modules um, that really speak to those perspectives. And so I think that it's really important that at the level of like decision-making and content creation and defining what it is to have a data science education, you need to make sure that there's like a broader tent of people than, than we've traditionally seen and, and um, you know, stats and, and CS and stuff like that. And so I think that's a part of that you know, defining a community of data science educators and data science practitioners, I think we have to be strategic and, and sort of very intentional about making sure that that community doesn't just become like a slight variation on the traditional CS communities that, that have already been sort of baked in, because I think we know we need to grow beyond that, but doing that's going to have to be a very intentional decision. Awesome. Um, so I'd like to move back to infrastructure because you're kind of like the infrastructure guy. Um, what do you think is the most essential infrastructure needed to teach a data science class? I would say, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you like a generic answer to this question. Um, I don't think that there's like a single tool that is most important. I think that what's more important is that you use tools that follow a particular um, set of kind of best practices. Um, and I say that because in my mind, the, the value of the modern day kind of open source data science and also you know, educational stack is that there is no single tool that just does it all, right? Like the, the main value of that stack is that you have all of these different open source pieces and they all exist semi-independently of one another. They're all being developed for particular pur purposes but they're also being designed like with one another in mind so that when you have data or when you have workflows, you can interoperate between these different tools relatively seamlessly, right? So, you know, examples of this might be like NumPy, Pandas, and Scikit-learn, right? These are three Python packages in the data science ecosystem. They exist totally independently of one another from like a governance and a planning standpoint, but they've all designed their infrastructure in an interoperable fashion. So they know about the infrastructure of the other pieces in that ecosystem. And doing that means that, you know, when you learn one of them, you're already getting like maybe 20 or 30% of the way to learning the other ones. You don't have to sort of like start over from scratch and, and learn like a whole new way of doing things. And I think that you can follow that all the way up the stack, right? Like all the way up to, you know, Jupyter Notebooks. I think that in Jupyter, the most valuable thing is just the IPYNV file because that's a, it's a standard and it defines a certain structure and you can take that structure with you and open it up in a Jupyter interface or in VS code or in, you know, in the collaboratory and like all of these other places. And it means you don't have to start over from scratch and sort of relearn the, the working model that you have for doing these kinds of like exploratory data analysis and whatnot. So, so in my mind, the most important infrastructure in a sense isn't a technical tool. It's more a practice of like standards and specifications that promote interoperability between ecosystems. And that way 
you can expand and grow and explore new spaces of like new things that, that you could do with this stuff, but in a way that sort of fuses with pre-existing workflows so that you can, you can have that nice balance between like stability and experimentation. That's awesome. I'll let you uh, see if the next question you can answer in a similar way. Uh, what's your experience with setting up infrastructure for other people? Uh, is this a hard thing to do? And is there like, is there ways we can improve this? Yes. <laughs> um, I think that, I mean, setting up infrastructure for other people also means a lot of different things, right? I mean, it might be something as simple as helping someone install the right version of Anaconda on their laptop, right? I mean, in a sense, that's helping set up infrastructure for someone. So I think that the question is like, what's the right kind of infrastructure that we need for a particular use case in education? And what's the right way to deliver that infrastructure to people, right? I mean, it could be as simple as like, they should have a laptop and we can give them a, a zip file, or it can be as complex as like, we manage a Kubernetes cluster running on cloud infrastructure that provides everything to them out of the box. Um, I think that right now, to be honest, we don't really know the answer to that question. Um, but I think that we have a good idea of the direction that it's heading. Um, I think that it's moving in the direction of, especially for education, there's value in having like shared interactive infrastructure so that people are fundamentally operating in the same digital space um, with the same uh, kind of baseline environments, maybe access to the same file systems and that kind of thing. Um, doing that, I mean, as we've seen, like, the various success stories at, at Berkeley, at other universities, and across different research projects, having that kind of shared space lets you do things with the pedagogy that you wouldn't have nearly as easily been able to do if you were asking people to just work locally on their own laptops. Um, the question of like, what's the best way to deliver that to people? I think that's the really, that's the one where the jury is still out, right? There are you know, there are web services that can do this where you just go to a website, you pay like a monthly fee and you just get access to an interface. And I think that for some people that works really well for them. Um, the model that we've tended to follow at Berkeley is like we actually host this infrastructure that is a little bit more kind of like bespoke and sort of tailored for this particular use case. I think that um, we'll probably get somewhere in between those two things. And in a sense, that's kind of what 2I2C is trying to do is sort of explore that space in between like full software as a service. You just go to a website and it's all a black box underneath on the one hand and like fully bespoke, but totally non-scalable. Like you just have your own full-time DevOps engineer on the other hand, like what's, what's the space in between where you have a lot of control and transparency into the infrastructure, but where you don't have to spend like, you know, three hours a day managing it yourself. You can just rely on other, other people to help, help you with that whether that's an organization like 2I2C or central IT in a university or some kind of like national infrastructure service that, you know, is funded by the NSF or something like that. I think that that is, I suspect going to be like the, the long-term solution to this problem. Yeah. That was my next question is uh, sort of like, where do you see this headed? Like, where are we going to be in three years with uh, infrastructure around data science education? Well, I mean, I think that there are two different, potential answers to that question. <laughs> and like the future will probably be a mixture between them, I would say. I think that the, I'll, I'll start with like the worst case scenario, which is that one potential future is that there are effectively three to four different 
data science infrastructure stacks. There's going to be like, there might be the, you know, the AWS stack, the Microsoft Azure stack, the Google Cloud stack, and maybe some other clouds that decide to like throw their hat in the ring as well. And that each one of these is going to be a super tightly vertically oriented stack. And maybe they'll reuse some of the same components, you know, like NumPy and Pandas and things like that. But like the interfaces and the way that data flows through that stack and the cloud services that you use are completely unique to that cloud vendor. I think that's like one potential feature, right? Um, I think the one that, that we're trying to work towards that I also think is, is possible is that basically you have a, a stack of infrastructure that is itself entirely cloud agnostic. It's very modular and interoperable with a variety of cloud architectures so that the user may have no idea whether that is running on Google Cloud or AWS or whatever, right? There's, there's nothing that is cloud specific in their experience, at least at the level of like data science education, right? I mean, if you, if you like continue on your work and, and now you're like a, a deep researcher in some field, then maybe it starts to make sense to start you know, utilizing cloud specific services and stuff. But at that introductory layer um, and at the, you know, the next few layers deep, what I want is to have a stack that behaves the exact same way across each of the cloud providers. And that I think has a variety of benefits. Um, one of them is that it, it encourages competition between the cloud providers. It makes it so that you know, it's, if it's easy for you to switch between them, then they will have to find ways to compete to want to keep your business. And I think that when they're competing, like customers, which is us, benefit from that competition. Um, the other important piece of it is that I think as groups that are increasingly driven by data um, and when data is getting larger and larger and increasingly needs to be stored on the cloud, you don't necessarily have control over where that data exists. And so I think that we need to have workflows that are fluid between the different cloud providers. I think there's this sort of notion of in the future, you don't bring data to computing, you bring computing and people to data, but that means you need to spin up infrastructure that is in, you know, this region of Google Cloud, you know, US West 3, or this region of, um, you know, AWS US North 1, or something like that, right? That's where the data is going to live. You have to bring people to that data in order to, to work on it, because the egress fees will just be too expensive to pull it out of those clouds. And so you need stacks that are, are able to flexibly operate in both of those spaces um, without relying on a lot of like vendor specific infrastructure. I think the sort of PyData stack, the Jupyter stack, that infrastructure stack, it's designed with that in mind. And we can leverage modern cloud um, architectures like Kubernetes to let us you know, minimize the amount of bespoke configuration for each cloud provider. Um, and I think that there are more services that are offering that kind of thing. So I'm hopeful that that is the direction that we're going to go towards is this like interoperable sea of infrastructure that can be deployable and configurable on any of the cloud providers. Um, but it is going to be a kind of a tug of war battle hitting there because the cloud providers also are incentivized to want to build stuff for you, right? Like they want to add value that differentiates from everybody else. And so it's like kind of this interesting, like, you know, cloud providers are both collaborators in many ways and, and in some other ways they're competitors and trying to find the right, the right balance there is something that's going to hash out over the next you know, four to five years. All right. More outside the box. If you could add some magic new functionality to Jupyter or Jupyter Hub for teaching, what would it be? I think that, I mean, it, so in my mind, the, 
biggest missing feature, and I would describe this as more like a missing suite of features, is that um, like a lot of the work on Jupyter Hub is what I would think of as like a hub and spoke model, right? You have like your, it's literally a hub in the middle and people have like, you can draw lines between that hub and individual users, you know, students or teachers or, or whatever. I think that one of the things that we found that was really interesting, like in data eight, was when you have that hub model, you can also start to draw connections between that hub and other things. So like, you know, you can put your content on a GitHub repository. Now you can generate a link that lets a student click it and just automatically pulls it into their um, local file system, right? So they get their own copy. And it was an interesting example of like, once you've centralized all these people in one place, you can start to do some other cool stuff you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So I think that that direction still hasn't been explored enough of like thinking beyond the just like hub and spoke model and start to think about how you draw connections between spokes or like between individual people, making it easier for them to like communicate with each other while they're on a hub or share infrastructure and resources on a hub. I think that like, the, you know, the obvious endpoint of this would be some kind of, you know, full-time, real-time collaboration kind of thing, like a Google Docs style thing. But I think that there's a ton of low-hanging fruit in the middle around just like simple sharing and commenting. And, you know, I did this cool analysis in a notebook and I just want to like share it with my team or share it with the class in an easy, lightweight uh, fashion so that they can both see it and maybe like grab their own copy. I think that there's a lot of stuff there that that is fairly straightforward from like an engineering standpoint. It just needs people to kind of like think about it and play around with those challenges. So that's what I would say is like an exciting next direction to move in is like thinking more about that. Like now that you have a hub, like what can you do with this community of people on shared infrastructure that connects them and allows them to share ideas in ways that goes beyond that like simple hub and spokes model. Nice. Okay, another outside the box one. If you, Chris Holdgraf, could teach an innovative new data science class, uh, what would that class be? I think that there's like a lot of interesting, pure technical, like here's how you leverage cloud infrastructure to its like maximum efficiency and productivity and whatnot. And I think that um, a lot of people don't understand how, for lack of a better word, like how cool that can look, you know? Um, a great example that I like to give is the, so. We work a lot with a project called Pangeo, which is this large-scale geospatial analytics um, uh, kind of platform. It uses a bunch of open source tools under the hood. And they do a lot of really cool work blending um, what I would call like interactive computing from high-performance computing. Um, so they run everything on you know, a scalable Kubernetes cluster and it's designed to be able to churn through terabytes and terabytes of, of climate modeling data or satellite data or whatever. Um, and usually when people think about that, they think, oh, okay, so I'm going to like run a job and it's going to run like a three-week analysis and crank out a statistic at the end. But you can also do things like set up uh, widgets that can display information in a very fluid manner, but utilizing that like high-performance architecture in the cloud. And so the simplest example of this is like, um, you know, you imagine like a Google Maps style widget where you see a map of something and then you zoom in on it and the map becomes kind of blurry because you've just zoomed in and then it like recomputes the resolution that it needs in order to display a like, sharper image. Um, so pretty similar to what you would do if you zoom in on a city in Google Maps. Um, Fangio has some examples where they have the same thing, but it's, it's looking at like statistics over satellite imagery 
And so you just see, you know, you see a map of um, some landmass and you zoom in on it, it's blurry and then it, it, sharpens, it sharpens itself. But under the hood, what's actually happening is when you zoomed in, it triggered a callback event that said, scale up a Dask cluster, ask for like 50 workers, churn through this like 20 terabyte data set, you know, extract out the boundaries of the new square that you zoomed in on, and then recompute the statistic and display it on the fly. Right? Like all of that happened in like four seconds. And so it feels like a very simple, easy, you know, familiar thing. Um, and all of that complexity was basically bundled up into this simple event of like, I just zoom in on a scroll wheel. And I think that like exploring that space of making really complicated things feel very simple and intuitive is really interesting. And I would love to like teach a class that sort of explores how that would look in other, in other kinds of ways. All right. This is, this is great. My last question for you is, you know, one thing when I think about Chris Holdgraf, I think about passion for open source communities. Um, so, and, and I want to link back to your answer before about how uh, advice about creating community around data science education. I think you mentioned like, uh, you know, how to, you know, the goal would be to have a more inclusive community. Um, just, you know, some parting words on like, what are your advice on, on great ways to create uh, an inclusive community? I mean, the main thing that I would recommend is to join forces with other communities that have like thought very deeply about this kind of thing. I mean, there's a ton of really great thinking and really great leaders out there um, that are trying to understand this like modern space of like distributed online communities and how to manage them in kind of like graceful and effective manners. Um, the, one of the programs that I did a lot of work with was called the Mozilla Open Leaders Fellowship which was like a, an annual cohort where they would kind of talk about different principles of open communities and inclusion and, and equity and whatnot. Um, that has now since morphed into, I think, a few different uh, efforts. Um, there's an interesting one called OpenScapes, which is a relatively new effort to run this as like a training for, for institutions and organizations around open collaborative principles. And actually that original open leaders framework has since been um, it's been turned into basically an agenda that you can fork and modify as, as you wish. Um, so I would, I would check out those kinds of communities and sort of learn what others have, have created as best practices in this space. Um, in terms of like specific things, I think that one of the most useful, one of the most useful pieces of advice that I got was to think about community itself as a product um, and design a product strategy around your community. So you have like a technical roadmap for, you know, a Jupyter Hub feature that you want to implement. You have an idea of like what it might take. You have an idea of, of you know, who it would who would need to do that work. You have metrics of like how successful are we in implementing it, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can take the same approach to communities of people as well, right? Like have a strategy for how you want your community to evolve and define some specific tangible things that you're gonna do to try to, to move in that direction. Define ways to like hold yourself accountable for whether the community is actually evolving in that way. And then um, iterate and learn and try different things. Um, and I think that part of that is involves like building effectively like a mental model of your community and assumptions about like the kinds of you know, levers at your disposal that you can use to try to influence your community in different kinds of ways. Um, 
another useful framework that I've often heard there, um, and this one's also kind of uh, drawn from the Mozilla world, is the notion of value exchanges. So a lot of people, when they think about like open source and how do you sort of incentivize people to work on it, everyone's assumption is always like, oh, we got to find some way to pay people. Like we have to, we have to get money to, to give it to someone to spend their time on it. And, I, you know, while money is obviously a useful way to motivate people to do things or to reward them or to compensate them for their work, uh, you know, one of the things that you learn is like value comes in lots of different forms. Um, it can come in the form of like positive feedback and encouragement. It can come in the form of um, having a high profile status so that others can see the work that you're doing. It can come in the form of like teaching and training or building, you know, a community of people that, that you enjoy working with. And I think that especially for like open, inclusive communities that don't have, you know, resources that they can just like, you know, pay people to do stuff, you have to think about like, what are the other ways in which your community can convey value to other people? And you have to create, um, you know, strategies for like, what's the kind of person that we want to bring into this community as well as empower within this community? And what are the kinds of things of value that we could offer them? Um, and then make a plan for, for actually doing that. So I think those those are two of the, the most useful things that have stuck with me over time. Thanks, Chris. That's awesome. Uh, I learn so much from talking with you every time. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it for us. Do you want? Do you say anything you want to say to wrap up? Um, no, not not that I can think of. Other than I think that these are all really interesting and important kind of topics to to discuss, and I like the kind of I like the intersection of both like technology and infrastructure use cases in the educational world and a question around like communities of people in that space. Cause I think that like in order to address these problems at a societal level, we need to think about all of those different things. It's not about focusing on any one of them. Um, and so I, I hope to see more conversations like that. in the future. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts. And join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.